from Real FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 29 for October 18th, 2022. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by Julia Alexander, director of strategy at Parrot Analytics, coming to us live, you know, on a podcast from France. Hello. Hi, how are you? Uh, Pretty good. Thank you for taking uh, your microphone along with you on your business trip. (laughs) Of course, I'm. It's um, almost midnight here, and I'm very excited to see what this podcast is. I think that's like where I'm coming into this. I'm yeah. like, this is going to be a fun experiment. I I have also recorded podcasts from Europe on business trips, and it's yeah. weird, and the timing is weird, and it's all. Yeah. Weird. But we'll we'll get through it. Um, I got a bunch of things to talk about. Let's just jump into it. Um, House of the Dragon, Rings of Power. We've talked about it over and over again. Still going on. I think you made a really interesting observation, though, which is that both shows are about on par in terms of numbers. And yet somehow House of the Dragon feels like it's a hit. It's all over TikTok. It has more buzz. And Rings of Power doesn't. Just feeling. So what is it? What is it that makes it Uh, because Rings of Power, as you say, is a hit, except it just feels like it's not. Is it the power of HBO training us all to pay attention on Sundays? Is it the power of the Monday morning water cooler? What is it that makes us... uh, Because I think you're right. I feel like more people are talking about House of the Dragon than are talking about Rings of Power, even though the numbers seem to suggest they're both doing pretty well. Yeah, it's funny because from a from a numbers perspective, if we just look at the data, they are about on par. Um, somebody brought up that they didn't think it was fair in this Twitter thread I did that I used Rotten Tomatoes critic scores and not audience scores. But there's been a lot of really gross review bombing, yeah, review bombing type thing. Yeah. So I, I looked at critic score and it's like a two percent difference. The Nielsen ratings are about on par. There's like a little bit of growth with House of the Dragon versus pretty much stagnation from Rings of Power in terms of Nielsen. And then if we look at the demand from Parrot Analytics, there is much stronger growth, although not huge growth. Like I would say stronger, but it's really low growth for House of the Dragon versus Rings of Power where there's like really low, uh, sorry, excuse me, where there's stronger decay, which basically just makes me think that if I was to model it out, that it would be that Rings of Power has a stronger decay factor, which means that that audience may not necessarily stick around as long as on Amazon Prime Video. You know, what does that mean in terms of Amazon specifically? It makes me think that although they're not necessarily going to cancel their service because there's other factors of Amazon Prime, as Jason and I have talked about on this uh, podcast over and over again, um, it makes me think that the engagement on the Prime Video side, which does affect advertising, may be impacted by the whole situation. But I think what really stuck out to me and, and to Jason's point about this thread I kind of made was that, you know, HBO kind of trained audiences over the last two and a half decades to expect things from Sunday night, right? There was this like the Sunday night and really over the last decade, Sunday was this moment of water cooler conversation that would happen on Monday morning. And so it was Game of Thrones. It was House of the Dragon. And now it's House of the Dragon, whatever it might be. You know, there's this moment of like, I'm going to watch House of the Dragon. I'm going to talk about it for the next few days. If we think about it in terms of the current streaming era, if you think about how limited attention is, especially when we consider all the different forms of entertainment, both interactive and passive that occupy our minds, not to mention real life relationships, work and all the other things like Sunday between Sunday and the next big thing, which let's be honest, is Wednesdays on Marvel, excuse me, on Disney Plus with both and Thursdays with the Marvel Disney um, with the Marvel and Star Wars things. 
you really get two to three core days of just House of the Dragon, which people get to really lock in on. They get to make edits. They get to talk about it. If we look at Rings of Power, you know, it's coming out on Friday. And not only is it competing, especially right now with people going back to theaters to watch films like Smile or Halloween Ends or whatever it might be, but there's like a 26-hour period between like that show coming out, people doing other things, and then House of the Dragon. And we know that there's a really strong audience overlap between House of the Dragon and Rings of Power. So it just means that that attention correlation is like not necessarily there for as long. And then within the course of the week, it gets lost when looking at She-Hulk or Andor or Dahmer or whatever else is happening between Netflix and Disney+, Plus, Paramount+, Plus, Peacock, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a really tough position for Amazon Prime Video to be in where they have the show that is getting viewed. Like I think the thing to really express is this is a hit in every sense of the term. It just doesn't feel like it. And I think that really speaks to programming strategy where it's not – you know, is it just enough to have a show that is being watched and maybe people aren't talking about it as much as another show, but it is being watched and the advertisers are happy and the cast is happy and the creators are happy? Or is there this cultural zeitgeist moment that you're really chasing after? And I think in terms of Rings of Power, which is a de- brand defining show for this platform, there is that aspect that happens with House of the Dragon that isn't happening with Rings of Power that is concerning alongside that increased episodic decay, which makes me suggest that that audience is not necessarily engaged with Amazon Prime Video as a whole compared to House of the Dragon, which has a one-to-one relationship with the viewership of Game of Thrones going up alongside House of the Dragon. And so I think, you know, if we had to crown a winner, and this is the conversation that always comes back to with this specific topic, House of the Dragon just kind of edges out um, rings of power, but it's fascinating to think about like what is a hit in streaming when you're not apples to apples comparison at you know right. the eight p.m. time slot on a Thursday. I mean, I suppose that there's when you talk about um, people paying attention and and the the show audiences having overlap. That that I I go back to thinking, what if these shows were not on at the same time, right? Because it's it's a bit much, right? Like these two high fantasy shows that cost a fortune and they're running simultaneously, and then they're both going to go off. And then they're off uh, for years, right? Or for a year. And uh, it's a little silly, right? Like, I think they probably would both have um, you gotten more attention if they were not running on top of each other. But that's competition. That's what happens. Do you know, though, is there a demographic difference between the two audiences? Because that was one thing that occurred to me is that I wonder if they, if the Prime Video Lord of the Rings audience is just different from house of the dragon and therefore the buzz is not as strong just because it's not a for lack of a better word uh, as buzzy an audience yeah so this question actually came up a lot and although rings of the power is a little bit older an audience it's not a huge difference it's not like we're seeing rings of power skew heavily to above 40 above 50 above 60 it's like we're seeing house of the dragon skew slightly more 50 50 in terms of female male and slightly younger and rings of power skew a little bit more male um, and a little bit older but they're still millennials and also if we think about like the original memes of or not the original memes but like memes in the era of the early to mid 2000s i mean it was lord of the rings like dominated it was like the aragorn meme right like lord of the rings is has its kind of has part of its continued 
fandom within this meme economy. Like it's it's very much a part of that narrative and part of that um not even narrative, but a part of that vernacular. Like that that exists. And so it's not like Lord of the Rings is an old audience and so therefore we wouldn't expect this. The way that you might talk about Yellowstone or NCIS or whatever it might be, this is still a youngish audience. I think the difference is I mean one, I noted this in my thread, there's a inherent quality issue and this isn't to say the show is bad i i actually really like the show i was re-watching it on um the plane ride over from new york to to france and it's a great show it's a slow show there's not a lot to tie into it it kind of feels like i was saying this to a friend of mine um karen hahn who's a brilliant writer works in entertainment and i said you know and she's a huge lord of the rings fan and i said to her it kind of feels like this whole season was designed around the idea and also the understanding that there are five seasons of the show kind of built in. And so they could use season one as a setup for season two. And so it kind of felt like, oh, well, we can raise the stakes in terms of acknowledging them without having to really deliver on them versus House of the Dragon, even though we knew it was going to get a second season, pretty much guaranteed, felt like it came out the gate with something to prove. And there was like this inherent drama that just did not exist in in Rings of Power. And so the thing about all the data points that we have to collect, which are very important to the business side of the operations, you know, television is still an, an art form that celebrates art. And so the quality of storytelling within rings of power i think it's just slightly less in, in terms of like having to watch it re- like right when it comes out it's just not there versus house of the dragon feels like it touches upon that walking dead succession breaking bad type of situation where it's like i have to watch this the moment this episode airs and that's what kind of makes us feel like it's a hit even though both again are by all numbers actual hits for these companies you know whether or not Amazon actually recuperates the amount of invest uh, in revenue it would need to deliver on that original investment. That's still unclear, and that decay rate has me a little bit concerned. But it is a hit. It's just this moment of like it comes out on Friday, people forget about it. They might watch it, but there's just this not inherently like bound to that timeline conversation happening that we see with House of the Dragon. Um, and the last time that we saw it with Rings of Power was on Friday when the finale aired. And then it was like trending on Twitter on Saturday. But that was really the only moment other than the premiere that that happened versus House of the Dragon has been trending kind of weekly. And so I think it's this understanding of like one there's like the inherent quality and that's just something that like i as a strategy person could not tell people how to make a better show like from a critical standpoint but from a programming strategy standpoint it does feel like that sunday moment where there's nothing before it other than film and there's nothing ahead of it until wednesday gives it like that nice 48 to 72 hour moment to breathe and find its meme and find its audience and find its edits on tiktok and find its twitter trending moment or whatever it might be that the rings of power just does not get yeah, I also wonder if there is um, just the fact that these shows are, are airing at a time. You talked about it all over the summer that we were headed into this high season where there's so much on there. Because there's also just in the genre of streaming, like there's Andor and She-Hulk and like there's a lot going on. Um, and I wonder, too, if, you know, there's a portion of the audience that's just behind. And I will tell you, I am one of those people. I am... a I am one one Rings of Power behind and two House of the Dragons behind now because I've had other things going on and I'm in, and I'm behind on Andor now too. So like th- that's the other part of it, right? Is like there's so much that I think yeah. that, you know, not everybody gets even a chance to watch it all day and date and it, it starts to pile up and uh, those people aren't buzzing about anything right now, even if they're watching. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, 
especially true with Andor, Jason. I, I, I am in 100% agreement with you. I'm on episode three, I think, and I mm-hmm. and I like what I've been watching. And, yeah. and everything I see on Twitter and like Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be, Reddit, is extremely positive. It's like this show yeah. is great. Like it's, it is. it's one of the best Star Wars things forever. And I was a huge Rogue One fan. So like this is right up my alley. And I just feel maybe a little burnt out. I don't know if that's the word you would use, but I think I'm just, you know, my, my partner, Kevin, who's celebrating the Jets beating the Packers, he, he turned to me and I said, we should catch up on Andor. We finished She-Hulk, loved it. And I was like, we should finish, you know, get caught up with Andor. And he just was like, you know, I'm just going to wait for it to finish. Like, I just, Mm -hmm. I can't, like, I don't have time. I don't have the energy. Here, here is a, uh, we're really off track, but it's okay. It's a good conversation. Um, I have some thoughts about like narrative in streaming shows and and right like there there's no one right way to tell a story there there isn't but we're talking about streaming and we're talking about like binge versus weekly drops and all of these things that we that come back around and and they matter like they don't they don't not matter you don't necessarily tell the same story um and the way people can choose it, it's and and it's like um it's like in a novel you 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 buy a book and you read it and are you driven through it where you have to keep reading or do you pick it up and read a chapter and put it back down and say i'll get to it tomorrow like those are different kind of ways of telling Mm -hmm. stories and i say Mm -hmm. that because house of the dragon feels like every episode is wow what's going to happen next Mm -hmm. um on that scale uh rings of power feels a little less like that right rings of power feels to me like kind of episodic but in a little bit more of a you know every episode's got something but they're really kind of telling this season-long story and it, it, it's not quite as like um must watch as house of the dragon right. is and i'm right. not saying anything about the quality because i think i actually like rings of power a little bit better than house of the dragon mm-hmm. i have some issues with house of the dragon uh, anyway but um then there's andor i think andor i might like the best of the three but I don't find it compelling right. in terms of immediate viewing because the storytelling style is very much like they're just telling, if not a whole season, three episode arcs. And it's one of those shows that like just some, sometimes the episodes just end and you're like, OK, I guess that's it for this week. And so if I was your partner, I would say to myself, I can let a bunch of those queue up and watch them right. when I want to. And it's going to be better watching as many as I want at once anyway, because it doesn't care. <laughs> it ends whenever it wants to. So why don't I watch it whenever I want to, I guess is the way I would put well, it with Andor. And, and you know where the winner is? And I know we have so many things to talk about, so we'll move on from this, but you know where the winner is in this whole situation between the rings of power and house of the dragon. It's not either of those shows. It's, to be honest, it's Dahmer. It's this like show from Netflix that <laughs> came out of nowhere with no marketing. I mean, it had the Ryan Murphy attachment. And it was Evan Peters, but it like dominated both those shows. And it has continued to kind of have this longevity on Netflix in a way that we aren't necessarily accustomed to with shows on Netflix that don't include the word stranger or things in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it it really has been a huge success story for, for that company. And I think part of that reason... I mean, one, it's a great show, but but two, and, and it ties into the real, like, true crime, and there's just a lot happening there. Sure. And very, Evan Peters, Ryan Murphy, in an online kind of circle is very big. But I, I would say that show being available in totality, you know, like, you know, we, we talk about this on the show often, you know, binge versus um, weekly. 
And weekly, absolutely, I think is my preferred. And the data shows that weekly is beneficial for the majority of television. But if we look at like what Dahmer did in that moment, it was like the whole show is available uh, mm. at once. People can binge it in the course of Friday and Saturday, which a lot of people anecdotally I know did. Like I did that. My Most of my friends did that. Everyone was done with it by like Saturday evening. Um, it was like cool i'm just gonna watch this it's fine there's no like hype around it in terms of like i have to know what happens next like we all know what happens with jeffrey dahmer like it's it's like i'm just gonna enjoy the show and i think that show came out of nowhere with no marketing did huge numbers it was kind of like oh there's this audience that just kind of wants that it doesn't yes. want to have to be in this cultural zeitgeisty thing all the time like i think what we don't say enough on this show uh, sorry not on the show i was gonna say well also on the show but also like in the industry in general is like it's I like it. The, it's keeping up with everything is exhausting. Mm-hmm. We say this actually on our show quite often, but uh, in the industry in general, like we we don't say that. And it's like sometimes you just want to find something. I think that's why people love old shows so much because you just want to find something like watch it. It's yeah. like cool. Like I'm gonna come to my own terms. I'm gonna know that Sam and Diane are a thing. Like I'm gonna watch Cheers. But and that's what Dahmer was like. Well, Dahmer is like. And if, if I yeah. want to watch two hours, I'll watch two hours. And if I want to exactly. watch five hours, I'll watch five hours. Whereas exactly. with the weekly, it's like, no, you're going to watch one. And then next week, you're going to watch one again. And I, I also like the weekly, but I see the value of it. Also, I'll just say it's an old term from television that I think is coming back around. We talked about how like release times and dates are moving around for competition. Counterprogramming is a thing. And part of counterprogramming is finding a show, you know, one back in the old days, one network put on a show or two networks put on shows that were like detective shows and they skewed really male. And the other networks would be like, well, we're going to counter-program with something that skews female because um, the women, uh, if only given those two show options, are going to be like, eh, you know, and then we give them a, a better option that appeals to women more. And the, w- the women who are viewing are going to be like, oh, I'll choose that. Now, that was, you know, in the ancient days of just a few channels. But like I look at something like Dahmer and I think it's almost programmed to say, hey, are you not one of these fantasy nerds? <laughs> watch this show about a serial killer instead and it's like that's exactly that's got to be part of it is that it's not a high fantasy show or a space show or a superhero show it's something totally different i was having a conversation with someone um potential client so i won't say who it is and they specifically were asking is there still room on the supply side when we look at it from a demand perspective for true crime shows uh and not just true crime unscripted which discovery has made a lot of money off of and netflix has made a lot of money off of a lot of these streamers have made a lot of money off of um but like scripted true crime like you kind of based on jeffrey dahmer and i think we'll see potentially how that plays out where i think netflix will try to turn the jeffrey dahmer which is a just called monster the jeffrey dahmer story i think we'll see like monster the btk story like i think we'll see that kind of thing play out i think it won't work as well for them i think it's really hard momentum to capture and jeffrey dahmer has Mm. a way of capturing uh, the american interests especially in a way that very few serial killers even in america do but all of the data that we look at myself my team um specifically speaks to this consistent level of demand for true crime scripted series without this level of supply meeting that demand it's it's actually still a white space opportunity and so i think netflix really demonstrated again you know there's a joke about this on uh in variety and variety noted like let the sharks you know kind of feast uh, and fight over all mm. these shows that have already been sold like all of these serial killer stories that have already been sold and there's kind of this constant level of people trying to figure it out but i think we're about to enter a new era of 
these serial killer scripted series really finding their audience. And it will kind of be a breakup to your exact point, Jason, from this moment that we've been in for the last decade of like fantasy really dominating in sci-fi. And I'm very curious to see how that plays out. But yeah, like I think in this conversation, I had someone ask me (laughs) today, actually at this event that I'm at in France, if I was tired of writing about, um, Rings of Power and House of the Dragon. I said, no, like, I love both shows. And I think it's a really fun story to kind of look at the new measurement systems, which I obviously am obsessed with. But I, you know, repeatedly say like Dahmer is the story. Like, and, and, mm-hmm. and what, what every, and I'll end on this, what every linear broadcast executive will tell you is that for every Dahmer Netflix puts out, they put out 10 Dahmers a week. And what they mean by that is that the numbers of Dahmer, which if we convert them, you know, from that like first two weeks turns out to be about, it turns out to be about like 10 million households and then like combined in the second week, it's like 20 million households over the course of two weeks. They'll say they put that out every night with NCIS or Law and Order, whatever it might be like, like that's their whole thing is like we do that on the regular. But for a company like Netflix, we're having that kind of global cultural zeitgeist moment and that kind of consistent viewership. Um, within the U.S., really poking up is like a huge sign of success for them, c- considering the level of little marketing that they do. So, yeah, out of this whole contest, Dahmer, big winner. Hmm. Okay, you mentioned Netflix and audience measurement, and that is going to lead me perfectly, thank you, into our next topic, which is something that was sent in via listener Duke, who says love to all the mothers everywhere, and also listener Samuel. And it's a news item from The Guardian in the U.K., that uh, Netflix has signed up for Barb. Um, now, Barb is basically the um, the British uh, third party ratings bureau, essentially. And what this means is that um, there will be an independently audited figure that Netflix has signed up for, um, or to quote the Guardian, the streaming service agreed to sign up as a full member of the British ratings ratings agency barb meaning it will publish independently audited viewing figures that can be compared with traditional channels which is the first time according to this story that netflix has agreed to participate in independently audited viewing figures what do you think i think this is part of the way it's going i think whether it's barb nielsen parrot antenna whoever it is there is this we're entering so we're entering a moment where Netflix is going to be held to greater standards of transparency by people who are going to give Netflix a lot of money. So let's break down this kind of Netflix ad tier, right? Which is happening. It's launching on November 3rd. That, that was going to uh, be my next topic. We can roll it in here too. November 3rd, 699, launching in 11 countries. Uh, it's It's happening. Yes, exactly. And so this is all kind of part of this conversation, right? And so when Netflix goes and says, we want to demand a $10 million upfront advertising commitment at $60 CPM, to put that into context, uh, Hulu charges, I think, between 30 and $40 for CPM. So Netflix is kind of coming in at a 30 to 60, per, 30 to 50% higher. And like, you know, saying we're going to do all this. You better believe those advertisers are going to say uh we want proof of viewership we want proof of engaged viewership we don't want proof of passive viewership. like we want all this proof and so netflix has to find ways to verify independently that viewerships that way the advertisers who are going to give them some a lot of money continue to give them a lot of money and so the only way for them to do this is to partner with third party uh parties like like barb like nielsen like parrot like antenna whoever it might be and i think what's really fascinating about this all is that we're trying to make 
television in 20 and, and ratings for television in 2022 work in like a 1980s model, right? We're trying to make an apples to apples comparison moment happen. And it's really difficult to do with, with shows that have advertising, it gets a little bit easier because what you're trying to do is determine what is the like view to viewer kind of ratio, right? Like are the people who are tuning in engaged and what does this mean for our business? And what does this mean for what this might do for advertising? Like that's, it's still relatively simple in terms of how we approach it. But for a streamer like Netflix, the value of a show beyond that advertising, as I've talked about on this podcast, gets a little bit different. And so we're trying to find antiquated solutions to very modern problems. And I think Barb is great. I think it's a great partnership. I think anything that encourages transparency across the board is great for the industry. And I think it just makes us act better as a whole. But I do think it's not necessarily the be end all. And I'm curious to see how it plays out and how it affects things as Netflix in- continues to kind of roll out advertising as a tier um, and roll out more transparency in other countries. Yeah. And for the record, this is UK ratings. So there will be the bar bar uh, ratings will include Netflix, but um, just in to compare to other UK programming, but still it's something. And it doesn't say that it's only on the ad-based one, but I wonder if, I mean, if I were Netflix, I'd really want to be able to break out who saw it with ads and who didn't. Um, but maybe they won't measure that. I don't know. We'll find out. But it's uh, things are changing with Netflix. And as as we mentioned, that ad tier is going to finally launch. It's launching next month. It's happening fast for six ninety nine in the U.S. and 11 other countries. And a small portion of the content won't be available at launch uh, for people at this tier, due to licensing restrictions, my guess is that that's a contract that says that you get it for an ad-free streaming presentation so that they could sell off a different, you know, sell it off somewhere else. There's something in the contract that says, no, 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 you can't use it on an ad tier. So some stuff will disappear, but most of it will be there. 95% of it. Um, Let's do a sports corner. Everybody likes Sports Corner. I love Sports Corner. I want us to get like cool intro music that's like a version of da 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 da, but wow. Sports Corner. Well, okay, well, we'll work on that. Sports Corner music. <laughs> um, Steven Chapansky, if you're out there, let's talk about some Sports Corner music. Sports Corner. Um, here it is. Uh, CNBC report that says... Uh, th- existing restrictions around Sunday ticket, NFL Sunday ticket, have slowed negotiations between Apple and the NFL in recent months, according to people familiar with the matter. So the idea here is Apple is talking to the NFL about Sunday ticket, and everybody's known that. Amazon is talking to them, too. Amazon already pays the NFL for Thursday night football. Um, And the story here is basically, well, Apple... You know, Apple is playing hardball with the NFL and the NFL is playing hardball with Apple. And the question is, you know, are they making a deal or are they falling out and it's going to go somewhere else? Um, The CNBC story points to a statement that Apple's Eddie Q, who's in charge of this stuff, made at a Paley Center panel in New York earlier. Uh, He said, we weren't interested in buying sports rights. This is generally not about the NFL. There are all kinds of capabilities we're going to be able to do together because we have everything together. Uh, So and so if I have a great idea, I don't have to think about, well, my contract or the deal or interest will allow this. The point here, I think, as an Apple observer for a living professionally, is that Apple 
I think Apple wants to be wants to have the freedom to get creative. And what we haven't seen yet with their Major League Baseball season that they did was that was produced by the MLB network and it wasn't that creative. But I think Apple wants at least the option of being creative. And I think with their MLS deal that's coming up next year, they definitely want to be creative. And that's one of the things that Q was talking about in that context. And so the question is, is Apple trying to do something different with Sunday Ticket than what DirecTV has done? Are they trying to get creative? Are there things in the contract that is, you know, as the NFL has laid it out, like this is what Sunday Ticket is? And expecting people to just line up and pay the money for it where Apple goes, what if it wasn't this? What if it was a little different? Can we negotiate that? And, you know, in the end, maybe the answer is no. You know, it nestles right in around all the other products that they've already sold. This is the only kind of outstanding piece of um, NFL rights that's out there through 2030. Um, But I, I, I don't know. I think it's interesting, um, and I don't think it precludes them making a deal, but it's sort of fascinating to think about it because I keep thinking that what Apple failed to do with their baseball thing is do anything that wasn't just another baseball game. And maybe MLS, they'll push it. And with Sunday Ticket, I feel the same way, which is if you're going to do Sunday Ticket, it's an interesting product because you get to all the out-of-market games, but can you do something... Um, is there room for innovation in there? And I don't know if there is because it's so constrained, but I think it's interesting that, um, that that may be the reason that the negotiations have slowed either that, or maybe they're just playing, playing hardball and trying to get the, uh, trying to get the price to be what they want it to be. And the MSNBC or the CNBC story makes one other point, which is this idea that for the price that they're asking, which is a huge amount of money, um, uh, between two and $3 billion, it may be that what Apple is essentially saying is, if we're going to overpay for this thing, you got to give us more latitude to experiment. Yeah, I think this is a very clear example of the leagues knowing how much power they have, and specifically the NFL, and kind of saying, like, if you're going to work with us, you're going to work with us on our terms, to your exact point, as you said. And Apple kind of being like, well, we're Apple, right? Like there's right. this moment of, I think, you know, the kind, the, sorry, the kind of quintessential tech giant steps into this entertainment mm-hmm. world and is like, well, we know your business this. better than you do. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. We're going to step in and we're going to revolutionize things and how it's going to be. And the NFL going like, well, no, 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 no. Just because you're a high bidder does not necessarily mean you're the only bidder, right. nor are you the only bidder who's high, right? Like that, that kind of conversation. And I think it's, very interesting. Um, what I will say is that if I'm Apple, I would maybe play alongside the NFL hard rules. Like you, you negotiate, right? Like you're going to try to get the most you can out of it. You're going to come down to the wire. But I do think that if we look at what has worked for Paramount and Peacock in terms of really driving actual substantial usage of those platforms uh, and therefore creating something of actual value to those consumers and then creating an actual valuable package. It is sports beyond mm-hmm. anything else. I think if Nef- if Amazon, excuse me, wow, I was like Netflix, Amazon. If Apple really wants to be in that space, then they have to play by the league rules. And that kind of sucks because Apple up until, you know, recently hasn't had to really play by anyone's rules like maybe on the supplier side with like actual hardware but really it's been apple's rules and that's a difficult thing to kind of swallow but for the next little bit the linear networks are still powerful and Mm -hmm. 
the leagues don't have to be in partnership with the big tech guys. And I would actually argue that if you ask them, they'd probably rather not be in relationship, yeah. but they're not going to pass up good money. money. And so, yeah. And so they're not going to pass up on that revenue. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, we still have some power here. And I think Apple really needs to wrap its head around that and and understand it. But I think you don't pass up on what could be a extremely good and consequential, you know, kind of in the best way moment for Apple and sports and potentially Apple TV Plus. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting though. I think I think it's 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 a fun kind of battle of the giants in their own respective areas and their own respective arenas. Yeah, it is. I for our international listeners, just to 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 be clear, uh, who are like, oh, American football, who cares? It's like it's number one. It is number one in America by far. It is a huge driver. It is the highest rated show on TV is Sunday Night Football and has been for years now, um, which is a primetime game. It's a huge driver of ratings. It's a huge moneymaker. I think if I'm the NFL, like part of me is like, well, look, don't tell us what to do. We're just used to our... Um, you know, just you write us a check. Although the truth is that they do collaborate with their broadcast partners. And I think that there probably is an argument that is being made inside the NFL offices, which is like, well, look, guys, this is Apple. The, Apple being our partner and giving them some latitude to innovate might really help us, right? Because, the, you know, they are also, uh, you know, legendary and they might be a really great partner. And you might also make the argument that Amazon's already a partner, right? Like we're already working with Amazon. My counter argument would be Sunday Ticket really isn't a, a produced product, right? Sunday Ticket is a product largely carved out of other people's products. You're what you're really doing is re-airing a game that contractually can't be. You know, you're you want to watch the Jets and you live in San Francisco, and uh, God help you, you want to watch the Jets, and so you don't get the Jets game, uh, even though it's on CBS in New York. Sunday Ticket will put it on your TV in San Francisco, but it's still the CBS broadcast. And that's not really going to change. And I have a hard time believing that Apple's going to be like, well, what if we overlaid that broadcast with like, no, 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 no. That's not what the product is. The product is a very much a retransmission and organization contractual kind of product. It's not the maybe the best fit for Apple, but it does get Apple in the door if they want to go that way. The only place that I find that could makes it interesting is that uh, Red Zone has its own, or Sunday Ticket has its own Red Zone channel. And that's the place where you've got a host standing there, like throwing it around to different uh, games as they're going on. DirecTV already did some innovation on that level, right, to make that thing exist. I feel like they could, there there might be some technical innovation there in terms of how you uh, place a bunch of different, you know, games on screen at once and all of that. But yeah, my guess is that in the end, it's just going to come down to money because I don't know how malleable this package is. It really is just a, a retransmission deal. 100%. Yeah. Um, all right. That's Sports Corner. We did it. <laughs> I love end Sports, of Sports Corner. Corner. It's my favorite corner. I want to do a quick check-in with you about Paramount. You wrote a, a piece on Puck News about uh, the future of Peacock and Paramount. And something you said that I just I wanted you to expand upon, if you could, please, which is... The, the, your observation that Paramount, Paramount may have undervalued content, extremely undervalued content, trapped in a hard-to-parse company strategy, which is really interesting, right? Because what you're saying is the problem is not the content, the intellectual property, the stuff that is owned and embedded inside Paramount. It's that 
it is inside Paramount. And that that's the problem. Like Paramount and its strategy are the problem, not the content that it owns. Yeah. So I think if we look at Paramount as a whole, and if we look at the contribution of demand share to Paramount or attributed to Paramount on platforms like Hulu and Netflix specifically, platforms like Amazon Prime Video, Paramount makes up a lot of demand share for a lot of the shows that people continuously watch, especially in the United States. And so if we think about how that parlays into how people and subscribers view the perceived value of that subscription, having access to NCIS and Shameless and Supernatural and all those types of shows, um, Schitt's Creek, all those types of things, you know, that's really core to that perceived value of that subscription. And we see them pop up all the time on the Nielsen top 10. We see them pop up all the time in terms of high demand on, um, for, for paired analytics and we see them kind of have a, a higher value in terms of retaining high churn subscribers. So it's a really risky group that they're retaining. So all of that makes me think that if you were to bring this kind of paramount content in house to a thing like Netflix, you know, the value of those titles and that IP and that library is extremely important, especially to the domestic market. And there was a report out of uh, Bloomberg by Lucas Shaw this weekend that Netflix was super interested in purchasing Paramount Pictures, just the movie group. And uh, Sherry Redstone, um, who owns Viacom, like, was Viacom CBS, is now Paramount uh, of the Redstone family. She was only interested in you know, kind of selling the whole company and Netflix didn't want to do that. And I think there's, I get it. Like I think Netflix's film side is struggling more than its TV side and they want that immediate investment in um brand and IP the way that Amazon saw with MGM. But I think there's an argument that all of that type of content would be really great on Paramount, uh, excuse me, on Netflix as a whole. And there's this like huge value in that library content for Netflix that is not necessarily on Paramount or Paramount Plus because Paramount Plus is not reaching the same sized audience. And it's really struggling to find its audience within the domestic marketplace as well as the international marketplace. You know, kind of this idea that we talked about in this podcast, a lot of Paramount or companies like Paramount and NBC Universal and Warner Brothers Discovery becoming content arms dealers again. This idea of like, well, what if you brought the whole thing in-house to a major distributor like a Netflix uh, or a Disney Plus or whatever it might be? And so I think the issue within Paramount, and I'm not the only one who says this, you can talk to people on their teams who kind of feel this way, is that there's these conflicting strategies between the teams, even in, even under streaming, even just within the streaming team of like what the best option is for a lot of these IPs, for a lot of these shows, for all these movies. And it gets really complicated to extract the most value out of this incredible offering that they have. You know, they're trading at like 18 bucks or $16, right? Like I, the last time I checked, like the stock is not super high. It's, it's actually at a steal right now. And I think if I'm someone like a Netflix who's really struggling to replicate the type of catalog content that I know my subscribers want, especially in high revenue markets like United States and Canada, or as they refer to it as you can, that is a very tantalizing offering that is kind of sitting before me. I get why they wouldn't want the whole thing. And I understand that they would not want to be in the linear business or CBS. And I think there's a whole lot that they would have to divest of that gets really complicated. But just from like a content catalog perspective, the content 
that Paramount as a whole produces, including CBS, like including like its NCISs and its Big Bang Theories and like all of that type stuff, you know, it's Young Sheldon's. Like there's a huge market from both a global distribution side where they distribute those to local linear channels as well as from a global streaming side. And I think that content is incredibly valuable caught up in a narrative framework that devalues it because the strategy of Paramount is so complex and um, at at points, you know, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Although I am, you know, I, I kind of believe in in what Paramount's trying to do. But I just think, yeah, like the more I study Paramount and its content, the content and the teams involved with the content are insanely smart and talented, and they know what they're doing. It's just wrapped up in a really bad moment of curious sales uh, mm. decisions. Um, so it's kind of yeah. With, when I wrote this piece for Puck, that's kind of what I was thinking about and, and looking at. Yeah, it's it's funny how some stuff is just uh you know trying to who who's in a position where it turns out that they have more of their previous strategy to un to you know unpick and get themselves out of and you know Les Moonves had a strategy and in many ways what he did was he sold his international expansion in order to drive CBS All Access up front and then he's gone but those deals are in place and that limits them. And, you know, it's a little like Warner Brothers Discovery having, you know, sold off the streaming rights to Harry Potter to, to Peacock, essentially. I mean, like all of these things are deals that you have to live down, but some of them are maybe more brutal than others or the investment opportunity, you know, or in this case, the merger of the two sides, like it, it ends up being, you end up in weird corporate places and I'm sure it'll all shake out in the end, but this might help determine who wins and who loses, who gets sold off and who, um, who stays together in the end. So, because I agree with you, Paramount's got great content. It's just like, but it's kind of a mess. Yeah, it's 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 a fun game of media chess, mm. right? Like this is what I used to call it. I used to play this game with editors in Slack and it was just like if you could partner, you know, back in the day it was like partnering talented journalists with like the publications. So if you could hire someone, you know, who would you hire or would you put them or what would what what would they be what hole would they be kind of filling if they were there? And now and then as I got more into entertainment and now, especially in my role, it's a fun game of M&A and like where, you know, it's kind of the the quintessential tee up if you were going to have the giant like should Microsoft acquire Netflix conversation, right? Like like that kind of overarching question of does that make sense? And I think Paramount, the beauty of Paramount is that it is producing very in demand and highly rated linear series that are finding home successfully on streaming services, whether it's Ghost, which has found a huge home on Paramount Plus and Amazon Prime Video, whether it's Criminal Minds and NCIS and Shameless, which have found huge audiences on Netflix and Supernatural, whatever it might be, um, whether it's things that they put on um, HBO Max, there are huge audiences. And it's just really difficult to capitalize on all those audiences in one place if you can't figure out the reason to bring them over. And so for a lot of companies, that's film, right? So when NBC Universal looks at Peacock, their big thing are Universal Pictures. It's Jurassic World, then that $2 price point for a limited time, and, and you get some subscribers in, and then it's sports, sports being the big one. Same for Paramount. With um, They either have uh, UEFA or they have EPL. I can't remember which one they have. but um, UEFA. UEFA, yeah. So, so you know, they have that, and it's it's great for them. But I think with Paramount, there's this like that library and that IP. Being able to own that across the film and television side is such 
an appealing offer. The CBS side as a news organization is daunting because you'd have to get rid of it quickly. There's I think a it lot would of... have to be a Fox deal, right? Like if you're, anybody else were to, yes. to buy them out, they would need to do what Disney did with Fox and, and basically separate the companies and have, uh, in that case, the Murdoch family took away the broadcast stations and the news outfits and the cable channels and, and the, you know, the stuff that was the Fox branded stuff. And that's a separate company. So you'd need to do that with CBS. Yes, right. You need to partition CBS and 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 send it away and CBS News. Yeah, exactly. Like you, there, there's no way you could do like there's no way the FTC would allow it in the way that it is. But right. Yeah. It's but it's a it's a because also also not even just including the FTC, like Netflix and Apple, like let's say the people who would really be interested in Paramount that are not Comcast, right? Like Netflix and Paramount or Warner Brothers Discovery, yeah. Netflix and Apple don't want a cable uh, sorry no. a broadcast network they don't or want amazon right? yeah or amazon they don't want any of that they're like mm-hmm. oh, this is nothing we no. want that library mm-hmm. so i'm sure there have been conversations about like hey we would love to take on all of your content and then you guys can keep your news and you know we'll figure out sports but that deal is not appealing to sherry redstone and and right. their team and so it's it's a really complicated situation of like who is willing to put in the money to buy everything and then put in the work to divest things. And I don't know if we're there yet. Right. There will come a day, but maybe not yet. I have one more corporate um, shenanigans thing that's related to mention, which is uh, a rollover from our last episode. I didn't get to it. This was sent in from listener Jim in the 615. Um, uh, It's a, a piece reminding everybody basically that Comcast still owns a share of Hulu. Uh, a third of it. And it was an opportunity for a Comcast. It, well, it was no, it was it was Jeff Shell, who I mentioned. I uh, We mentioned him last time um, commenting about it uh, from from NBC Universal and saying uh, our anticipation is that Disney is going to buy it. It's a great asset. It, if it was put on the auction block, it would fetch a high price. We, we'd participate in that auction. We don't anticipate owning Hulu, but it's a fantastic asset. And it's just a good reminder that Disney wants to buy Comcast out of that last one third of Hulu that's out there, but it's not going to be cheap. They have to agree on a valuation. Um, Comcast agreed to sell its minority stake by as early as 2024. Disney guaranteed a price valuing Hulu at a minimum of $27.5 billion. That's a $9 billion bill for Disney to pay for Hulu. So the the story in CNBC that I'll put in the show notes suggests Comcast is like kind of willing to sit back and say maybe Disney will decide that it's not a good fit after all and sell Hulu back to Comcast instead, which is really interesting. Um, I do think it also brings up the existential question of Hulu, which is that everywhere else that content's just on Disney Plus. And so does Hulu have value other than as another leg in the bundle. Um, And when you think about Comcast buying Hulu, I have another question, which is, is Hulu actually a better brand than Peacock? Um, What do you think about all of this? I think the never-ending question of what is Hulu is a fun (laughs) one. And, And you could talk to any analysts, any journalists, I would wager, I would put good money. You could talk to a lot of executives and ask them that question and no one could tell you mm. what the Hulu deal is. Here's the thing with Hulu. Hulu generates a butt ton of um, ads, of ad revenue. It, yeah. it, it, it was built it around ads. In, Unlike every other streaming package, it was built around ads. 
it pulls in exactly a, a huge amount of ad revenue. And the thing is, Hulu is a tantalizing offer within that Disney bundle. Now, whether or not people necessarily who sign up for Disney Plus do and then the bundle actually go to Hulu, I'm unclear on, but it's a tantalizing offer. It is like I could go to Hulu and there's this thing here and it's FX or it's a movie or it's whatever it might be, a Hulu original I'm going to go. So the thing is that Hulu, in my opinion, does is kind of your your sticky glue. It is the thing that's like it's messy and you actually really don't like it, but it gets the job done. And so it's kind of this necessary tool that you need. Now, Hulu does some great shows. The shows, the original series yeah. have gotten much better in the last two years. Yeah, for sure. I think they've got a great development team. Mm-hmm. I think bringing John Landgraf in and the FX mm-hmm. team has been super smart. Yeah, totally. Like I like Hulu a lot. I do too. But, you know, what is Hulu out and especially as a domestic only product, right? Like as a domestic only product, that's probably not going to grow much more than maybe 65 million subscribers, which is substantial. You know, what is this product? And I think the answer is that it is a place to get ahead of this kind of major shift in the advertising market that's going to happen over the next two years, two to three years. Um, And that's great. And that's kind of what Disney wants it to be. And, And I think I get where Jeff Shell is coming from. It's it's much harder to launch a streaming service from the start with including all those tech issues, bring in advertisers, try to figure things out, then to just acquire a platform that has 45 million subscribers. No, not 45, excuse me. I think who's sitting around like 40, 40 million subscribers, um, bring them in and then kind of build off that and build off library. But yeah, I think I think that's actually like the best analogy I can think of for for Hulu is that it's basically like glue. It it holds that bundle mm. together. It is a necessary tool that Disney really relies on. It's extremely helpful and it's got some really appealing qualities and content, but there are all these major issues with it. No one really understands the strategy behind it. Um, I know that all of these strategists I've really respected from Disney are big fans of Hulu, and I think that says something about what Hulu is, mm. including former strategy people. They're they're big fans of Hulu, and I think that kind of speaks to like this bread and butter winner. And also, like this is something that you know I'm writing about for Puck. Uh, by the time this podcast comes out, I think the story will be out, but I, I'm not sure because we're recording a little bit earlier um, due to France. But <laughs> it, it's it's uh, you know something I'm writing about for Puck is like. The ad tier revenues of these streaming services can eventually generate stronger average revenue per user than the sub-only tiers. And this is what Netflix is kind of hoping for as well, is that it leads to neutral to like positive gains, both subscriber-wise and revenue-wise. And so if you look at Hulu, it's ARPU, I think, is like 12-something, right, on an average of, I think, um, $12 uh, subscriber or like $11 subscriber. Like it's a decent ARPU. To put that into perspective, like Netflix's ARPU at the time of this, it's right before Q3 report came out. So I'm not sure what it will be when that report comes out, but it was like $15.95 on like a $15 or $15.50 subscriber, right? Uh, um, charge. So like there's some ARPU there. So that's put that into perspective. You know, do you look at Disney Plus? I think it was like $6 on like an $8 subscriber fee. So, so it, Hulu makes decent ARPU and the thing in large part thanks to ads. Um, and so it still generates decent revenue, especially in a sector where there is no huge profit being generated outside of Netflix, uh, and even at Netflix. And so everyone's kind of burning holes in their pockets. And so I think Hulu is this 
anomaly that is like no one really knows why they'd want Hulu, but everyone who uses it is kind of like, oh, well, it's good enough that I like it, that it has stuff that I want from everyone that I will keep using it. And those within the Disney bundle especially are like, it does the job. Uh, and I think that's kind of what Hulu is. Hulu is the thing that prevents mass churn across the Disney streaming ecosystem at a time when they need to scale at uh, an incredible rate without sacrificing ARPU, as they're doing in like Disney Plus uh, in India with Hotstar. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that's it. I think like that's the Hulu. I mean, I could be completely wrong. I would love for anyone who works within Disney streaming to like reach out off the record and just let me know, uh, of the strategy team. But yeah, it just kind of feels like, like glue. Yeah. It's just the challenge is that the glue bill is 9 billion. It's 9 billion. <laughs> so, not, you know what though? It's, it's not for Disney. I mean, it's a lot of money, yeah. but in the long run, even if they fold Hulu into Disney Plus and they carry those subscribers over and they can generate strong advertising revenue off that increased subscriber base, and let's say they churn at less than 6% or 7%, like it still works out for them. And mm. I think that's still something that they would want. And they definitely, more importantly, as is the case with business, that's not that's something they don't want Peacock to have. Right. Exactly right. There's the other thing, which is just keeping your competitor away from it. All right, I have a couple of letters before we go. Uh, one is from Lister Brian, who just wanted to say, I look forward to your future segment on ranking the pluses. We said we're going to do that. We're going to rank all the pluses. Um, and then he sent a YouTube link, which I'll put in the show notes. It is a hilarious YouTube video. It's an ad for um, for Hulu, where they're trying to come up with a name for the Hulu Plus Live TV Plus Disney Plus Plus ESPN Plus Bundle which is just as funny as when I just said it. And they decide at the end of the ad to settle on Hulu plus, 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 uh, just lots and lots of, uh, lots of pluses. So he says, obviously Hulu plus, plus, plus will win, but I'm curious to see where the rest come in. I laughed out loud when I saw the ad and I thought of your show. Uh, thank you, Brian. That ad is very funny. At least somebody has got a sense of humor about all the pluses that are out there. That's all I'm going to say about that. Hulu, we, and we didn't even mention their live TV thing. They they are also, on top of everything else, a VMPVD, right? They're a, yeah. they're, Hulu Plus Live TV is a YouTube TV um, sling and Fubo competitor. So they've got that in the mix, too. A totally other product. Wild. Yeah, and I think that's still... So this is, I think, we're in this rat race of... You know, I was having a lot of conversations with people at this trade show in France, and, and we were talking about how the profit this i've talked about this on the podcast the profit margins on streaming are no nowhere close to what they are in broadcast and and the profit margins on streaming are probably not going to be anywhere close to broadcast for some time and so there's this huge pull to you know remain within linear especially if you're disney warner um nbc paramount like there's this huge push to be there still and and to to ride that out the advertisers also kind of want to be on linear still because it's a huge audience and it's a dead and the thing about linear is that it's an engaged audience it's like 60 year olds who will watch advertisements like it's it's a huge thing and so i think with hulu you know kind of i think a pluto tv over at paramount it, there, there's this race to get the ads and the ad tech right before everyone's trying to get it see you know netflix right now and so i think there's this kind of beauty to i mean hulu ads are a nightmare talk to anyone who uses hulu with ads but but there's this like they're almost usually sold out with ad inventory. There's there's this there's this trust within Hulu ads, and I think that speaks a lot to um, where Hulu kind of currently sits. It's it's again, it's like this necessary evil, not even evil. It's a great. Pl- I actually really like Hulu a lot, but it's this thing of 
it makes a lot of sense, both from an experimentation and a revenue side of, of things. And even at that $9 billion price tag, it's like, it's better than the competitors having it. There's still a lot of potential value in there if it's if it's used correctly, um, even at a $9 billion uh, a fee. And so, yeah, I, I think Hulu is an interesting, Hulu's been an interesting, I wrote a newsletter like two and a half years ago that was like, what's the deal with Hulu? Lucas Shaw has written newsletters that's like, what's the deal with Hulu? Mm. No one knows what's going on with Hulu ever. It's the most complicated product within all this thing because it sits between these other streaming services and it, it's just everything about hulu is like whimsical and like odd and like without <laughs> explanation but if you step back and you kind of think about it as like well we're planting our flag like maybe there's a reason for it but you know who knows three pluses that's all you need to know plus 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 done <laughs> Uh, one more letter. This is from John who writes regarding luck on Apple TV plus one argument I felt was left out of the conversation is localization. Luck is the first kids content on Apple service that has a Swedish audio track. And I assume lots of other small languages as well. I have a six year old daughter and up till now, every show or movie on Apple TV Plus has been completely irrelevant to her because she doesn't yet speak English or read subtitles compare with Disney plus where everything is dubbed all the best john nice little international tidbit there like i'm surprised that apple has not you know as a all international service has not gotten with the program sooner in terms of covering a broader section of languages i guess they had to i guess they started somewhere they chose to start somewhere and expand but it's great news for sweden and presumably other languages that apple keeps expanding out but that's also telling right that disney is there that that disney apparently has got it down yeah i mean Kids content is so interesting because it's exactly what um, John is pointing out. Like there's aspects of it that come into play and localization and local languages and really expanding into a global audience is a big part of it that people outside of Disney don't think about. And I, there's a really great Oscar moment from when did Frozen 2 come out? 2018? 2019. It came out 2019. There's a really great moment at the... Uh, oscars whenever that was like of 2020 i guess it was 2020 right before the pandemic and they got all these different singers from around the world to sing parts of um into the unknown which is the song that elsa yeah sings in frozen 2 and it was this moment of like disney one it was like a beautiful moment but two like disney flexing right like they're like we can localize this in however many languages and however many countries because that's what disney movies are like we're a global thing and i think this is something that a lot of the new companies really struggle to understand netflix kind of gets it or netflix works really hard on this but to get to that level of being a global kids you know dominating brand you really have to have those localization languages and so i think that's an i think that's a, a really really excellent point and i and i think that's something that apple also considers all right well we have reached the end thank you for soldiering on from um france by the way we did it. We did a whole episode with you in France. I, I feel we did good. it. It's great. I'm drinking water. It's, it's it comes it's, through the microphone. It's, it's I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, if you if you have a question for our next episode, email us downstream at relay.fm or just send a message preceded by question mark ask downstream in the Relay FM members Discord if you're a member. Uh, you can also just tweet at us at downstream pod, of course. Love to your mothers, no matter how you send in your questions you can also find our director of strategy julia at loudmouth julia on twitter and at parrotanalytics.com and of course you can find me at jsnell on twitter and at sixcolors.com and that's it until next time julia bon voyage 
au revoir au revoir